0: Man, what a privilege it is for me to be here with you. Um, I really, really mean that. I I just, I love college students. I love college students. It is just, it's energizing to be here with you. Um, What I love about you is that you've all come here on your own accord. Maybe you had a friend drag you here, but you're still here on your own. And being this point in your life, you're just hungry for God. You just want more of God, you want something real, you don't want fluff. You don't want filler, you just want, you want God, and I, and I love that, and I love that. You know, at, at this point in your life, um, being in college, you have just such a unique opportunity right now. Um, maybe you didn't wanna be here at the University of Northern Iowa, maybe you wanted to go to Harvard and you didn't get in, so you came here. Um, whatever the case is, that you're here, and I believe that, that God has, has brought you here as a missionary to this campus. I really believe that. And yeah, hopefully you'll, you'll get a degree when you're done and hope you won't, you'll have minimal debt. Um, but most importantly, hopefully you'll be able to answer yes to the question, did I make an impact? Did I have an influence while I was here on campus? And maybe you're in the last semester of your senior year and you look back and you think, man, God, I didn't, I didn't do the things that, that you asked me to do. I would encourage you now just to start now. Never in your life are you going to have the schedule that you have right now where you can just blow off class if you want to. And you can stay up till three in the morning and you can say, you know what, let's drive to Chicago or let's drive to, you can't do that when you have a job. Well, you can, but then you won't have a job anymore. (laughs) Never in your life are you gonna be surrounded uh, in such close proximity with so many people, where you can walk down next door and and hang out with somebody. When you uh, are out of college, life is just different and it's good, you can't stay in college forever, but for this season of your life, I want you to know that there's a very specific purpose in which God has brought you here to this campus, and I hope you grab a hold of that and, and take that responsibility seriously. I can remember uh, when this uh, Kyle was started, and uh, maybe some of you know Jonathan um, uh, one of the most intense people, the longest laughers I have ever met in my life. I would be on phone calls with Jonathan, and he would tell a joke, and he'd be laughing, and I'd have the phone down, and He's still laughing, okay? <laughs> We're still going. You know, awesome guy. But, you know, I can remember being at a winter conference where there was no Kai Alpha in Iowa, and Jonathan standing up, and, and, and everyone praying and believing. And I remember praying specifically, God, send people to Iowa. Send people to Iowa. And I was perfectly happy in North Dakota State. We had revival breaking out. And I was perfectly happy. Little did I know that, God, that I was praying, God, send me to Iowa. Because a year later, God said, Tony, I want you to go to Iowa. And I said, God, I do not want to go to Iowa. Maybe you, some of you feel the same way. And I'm from North Dakota, so you're like, well, what's so great about North Dakota? Well, that's a different conversation. So, but I was like, God, I don't, I do not want to go to Iowa. And I remember God spoke so clearly to me. He said, Tony, I didn't ask if you wanted to. I asked if you were willing. And I said, okay, <laughs> I guess we're going to go to Iowa. And we packed up all of our things, and we came. We, we pioneered at the University of Iowa. And um, all that to say is, man, I just believe in what's happening here. We, we support it. We pray for you. I pray for you. I hope you know that. We support it financially. We support it with um, uh, encouragement in any way we can support in Chi Alpha, nationally, internationally. It's just an incredible organization. My wife, Kayla, and I, we've been married for eight years, um, the last three or four have been good. <laughs> the f- first ones were really, really hard. Um, that's a different conversation too. Uh, we have one daughter, Evie. She's three and a half, and we have a little boy on the way. Just found out on Friday. Uh, it's going to be a boy on, in June. So that's exciting. It's really exciting. Um, they wish they could be here, but you know, she goes to bed. So um, I brought my friend Jerus with me. Uh, he's a youth pastor at the church in which we serve, and. Uh, He's been there for about a year, him and his wife Abby, some of you know him, but just an incredible, incredible guy, I've Been become one of my closest friends, and so if you get an opportunity to, to speak with him, please do so. Um, man, I feel like I'm supposed to say this, and this might, you might know this, but I want you to know, if you hear nothing else that I say tonight, please hear this. I want you to know that Jesus loves you so much. please, if you hear nothing else, I say, I want you to hear that, that Jesus loves you more than you could ever know, more than you could ever know. His love is greater than you could ever think and than you could ever imagine. It goes so much deeper than your wildest expectations. And so if you came in here doubting that, I hope by the end of this night, God has so cemented it in your heart that his his love for you goes so deep. A number of years ago, I was... um, I was, at, I was performing a wedding, and um, the father of the groom was a lumberjack, literally a lumberjack uh, from Oregon. He wore flannel every time that I had ever seen him. He was wearing flannel at the wedding. Uh, he had a, a, this big beard. He was just, you know, I felt so emasculated just standing next to him, <laughs> just a manly, manly guy. And he didn't talk much, but what he did share, he, he got up and he shared this story, and it, it was just so profound to me um, that I've remembered it and he told the story about this little girl, she was about eight years old. And um, she was walking through her town with her mom and they were looking at all the shop windows, looking at the different things, and she came up to this window and she looked up and she saw this display and in the display was this this necklace, this pearl necklace. And she thought to herself, I, I have to have that pearl necklace. I, I I need to have it. And she said, Mom, mom, look at that necklace, isn't it so beautiful? Will you will you buy me that necklace? And the mom said, no, honey, I won't buy you that necklace, but I bet if, if you, you know, went home and checked in your piggy bank or if you did extra, extra chores around the house or, or for the neighbors or in the neighborhood, you could save up enough money and you could buy that necklace. And so that little girl, was, she was bound and determined that she was going to get that necklace. So over the next months, that's what she did. She worked and worked and worked her tail off until finally the day came where she had enough money and she went to her mom. She's like, Mom, I have enough money for the necklace. And so they went down to the store. They paid the shopkeeper the shopkeeper win. And, and he took the necklace and he, he took it off the display and he put it around her neck. And she looked at herself and she thought, oh, my goodness, this necklace is the greatest thing I've ever owned. I worked so, so hard for this necklace. Look at how amazing it is. This is the greatest thing that I've ever owned. And so from that day forward, that necklace never left her neck. When she went to bed at night, the necklace was there. When she woke up in the morning, the necklace was there. When she went to school, when she was in the bath, the necklace was always on her neck. Well, one day, her dad, he came home from work, and he sat down on the couch, and he said, he said, honey, come here. I want to ask you something. And she came over, and she crawled into her daddy's lap, and he said, he looked at her in the eyes, and he says, darling, do you love me? And she looked at him, and she was just very perplexed. She's like, dad, of course I love you. You know that I love you. Why would you even ask me that? That's a crazy question. Of course I love you. And he said, well, honey, if you love me, I want you to give me that necklace. And she became angry and said, Dad, how dare you ask me for this necklace because you know how hard I worked for this necklace. It's my prized possession. No, there's no way that I'm giving this necklace. And she hopped down off his lap and she went into her room and slammed the door. Next day, Dad comes home from work and he sits down on the couch. And he says, honey, come here, I want to ask you something. She crawls up into his lap and he looks at her in the eyes and he says, darling, do you love me? And she says, dad, why are you asking me this question? I I told you yesterday I love you. You know that I love you. Stop asking me. And he said, honey, if you love me, I want you to give me that necklace. She said, dad, I'm not giving you this necklace. Don't ask me again. She got off his lap and she went to her room, slammed the door. This went on for days and days and days and days and days. The same song and dance. One day, Dad came home, he sat on the couch. By this time, she knew what was gonna happen. He said, honey, come here, I wanna ask you a question. She crawled up into his lap and he says, darling, do you love me? She says, yeah, Dad, I love you. She already knew what he was gonna ask, but he said, honey, if you love me, I want you to give me that necklace. She let out a big sigh. She said, okay, Dad, I'll give you my necklace. She undid the necklace. She looked at it one last time. She still couldn't believe that she was giving up this, her prized possession. She gave it to her father. He grabbed it. He put it in in his pocket. She was going to crawl off his lap. She felt dejected, empty-handed. He grabs her and he pulls her in close. As he pulls her in close, he reaches in his other pocket, and he pulls out a, a real pearl necklace. And he gives it to her, he puts it on his neck, and he said, honey, this is a real pearl necklace. You see, the one that you had before was just plastic. It was a cheap imitation, but this is the real one. And I was waiting for so long for you to give up the fake one so I could give you the real thing. And I think the reason that that spoke so profoundly to me is because that's what we often do. We hold on so tightly to this cheap imitation of relationship with God or intimacy with God or His grace. We hold on, we, we work so hard for it. This, this superficial relationship or this facade or this religion or our, our Instagram persona. We hold on so tight when God is saying, I wish you would just give me that fake thing, that cheap imitation, so I could give you the real thing. And that real thing is so much better than we could ever imagine. It's far greater than anything we had ever experienced up until that, until that point. You see there's such joy in surrendering to God. It's not something that we do begrudgingly. There's such joy in surrendering because it's not like we give something to God and then we we just leave empty-handed. We what an what an amazing exchange this is with God. We give him this our garbage. And he gives us the best, the best. We see this to be true in In Ephesians chapter 2, if you have a Bible or a tablet or whatever you want to look at the Bible in, Ephesians is in the last quarter of your Bible. It's um, in the New Testament after 1st and 2nd Corinthians after Galatians. It's a little short book written by the Apostle Paul, or as my my daughter calls him, that, that nice boy who loves Jesus. And really, we can, we, can, we can boil the entire Christian life down to these 10 verses. There's never a point in which we have to graduate from this, what we're reading right here, okay? This God has made this so simple for us. I am not a smart person at all. And if I can understand this, and we can grasp this not just in, in here, but in here, it's going to make all the difference, in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1, it says, Paul says this, And you, he made alive, you who were dead in your trespasses and sin, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince and the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. Let's stop there. Paul is so clear here. Every single one of us, we are dead. We are dead in our sin. Our absolute best falls so short of what, of what God requires. Every single one of us has, has done what we felt like at one point. We've lived selfishly. We've fulfilled the lust of the flesh. We've allowed our mind to wander in different places that we, we shouldn't have and it's caused us to do things. Each one of us has held on to our rights. Whether we've stole a a, a pack of cigarettes or you stole a million dollars, it doesn't really matter. Every single human, every person on the face of of the earth falls short. In Romans 3, Paul says that, he's reading Old Testament Scripture, he says there's just not one righteous, there's not one good among us, not one of us. Every single one of us falls short. The prophet Isaiah says that our righteousness or our goodness is like filthy rags. Our absolute best is like filthy rags. Every single one of us, every single one of us, we are guilty. And most of us, we either try to hide it or we try to make up for it. We try to perform our way out of it. We try to strive. We try a little harder. We avoid it or or we, we stuff it or we hide it when God wants to take it. If we keep reading in verse four, it says, this is amazing, it says, but God, who is rich in mercy, And because of his great love, which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. And it's by grace that you have been saved and raised us up together and made us to sit together in the heavenly places with Jesus. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us in Jesus. As for it's by grace that you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is a gift from God, not of works, works, lest anyone should boast for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we, might sh- that we, that we should walk in them. Listen to the, the way in which he describes our God. He says that he is rich in mercy. What is it to be rich? It means to have more than we could ever need, more than we could ever use, to have an abundance. It says that he, has, he is great love, He is exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us. If that doesn't do something with your heart, then I would, to your heart, I would check your pulse because this is the God that we know. He is not this withdrawn, spiteful God who the thief has made him out to be. His love for us is rich and deep, and it is, it is wide, it is strong. He says, for by grace we have been saved through faith. I think if you've walked with, uh, in Christianity for any amount of time, you've heard that. It's hard to know what that means. It just becomes kind of a slogan. By grace we're saved, but what does that even mean? Grace is God's unmerited favor. It's also his, the ability, uh, the, the, the empower, how God empowers us to live for him. God is gracious to us. But what is faith? Faith Faith is oftentimes described as like we, our faith, like our Christianity, our religion, right? Uh, but in Hebrews, the author of Hebrews says that, that faith is the substance of things hoped for. The substance, that's the key word, the substance of things hoped for. The word substance means the, like the reality, the reality of knowing God. It talks about the character of a person that can be tried, that's what, that's what faith is. It's the reality of knowing God. That because of His grace, He reveals Himself to us and who He is and, and His character. So that's why it doesn't make any sense to, to the world who doesn't know Him. It doesn't make any sense. Why would this God care anything, this omniscient, uh, all knowing God, why would He care anything about uh, these little parasites who, who screw up everything all the time? It doesn't make any sense. That's why 1 Corinthians, in chapter 1, Paul says, the the, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. It doesn't make any sense. It isn't until we meet Jesus, we understand the person of Jesus, who who Jesus reveals to us the heart of the Father. Read about him. Read about his life. He reveals to us who God is in greater measure. And once once we meet him, we understand his character, his exceeding grace and kindness. Paul says that it's, it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. It's not the wrath of God. It's the, God, the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. And it's his grace that he reveals to us who he is. And once we know him, the more we want to know him, the more that we, know, we realize that we need him in a greater measure You know, my daughter, when she was six months old, I can remember driving in the car. We traveled a lot back then, and um, I can remember she's six months old, and, you know, we're driving, and she just doesn't want to be, she doesn't want to be in the car any longer. She wants to be out of the car seat, so she's screaming, you know. And as her dad, I can't, I can't say, honey, we're going to be there in an hour, because at six months, she doesn't know what an hour is. And so I'd be like, honey, do you know what an hour is? No? Okay, do you know what a minute is? Or a second? Do you know what miles are? <laughs> can I explain to you the, the concept of time? At six months, none of that makes any... She doesn't have the capacity to understand that. I can remember getting up in the middle of the night after she filled her pants, in, and she's just unhappy. She's screaming, and I'm, I'm sitting there heavy. I'm trying to help you. This wife is going to be cold. I'm going to get you cleaned up. I'm trying to help you. But she can't understand. She doesn't have the capacity to understand. So what what are my options? What am I left with? Through relationship with her, she understands and knows my character. She sees, even though she doesn't understand what's happening, she sees that dad's here, so it's going to be okay because my dad is loving, whether she cognitively thinks that or not. This, one, this person's going to take care of me. He loves me. He's trustworthy. Mom is trustworthy. Dad is here. It's going to be okay. And this is the same. This is why it's so imperative that we know God, that we have a relationship with them, because things are going to happen in life. If tragedy hasn't, struck your, uh, hasn't come knocking on your door, I'm sorry to say, but, but it will at some point in your life. And it's at that point that we can trust, God, I don't know the answers. And even if, even, if I, even if you gave me the answers, it probably wouldn't even make sense to me. But I know that you're good. I know that you're good. I know that you're for me. I know that you love me. I know that you're kind. I know that you're gracious. I know that you have it figured out because I know you. And this is what it is to be alive in Jesus, that he made us alive. It's to know God, and it's exciting. It's exciting that He has created us to do good works. He's created us to do things that are good. We don't do it to attain mercy from him or grace from him. We do it because we love him, because we're like him. And I want you to know today that if, if this walk with Jesus has become boring to you, then you're doing it wrong. Because every single day can be a new adventure with him that God's spirit has come in and it, is, it has ignited a fire and you can't help but light a fire wherever you go because the fire is just in you. And you'll never know who you might encounter in a day and pray and they would get healed or have a word of knowledge or a word of wisdom for them. Or God just downloads some, some crazy knowledge about who he is in a new way. Man, that's exciting. That's really exciting. The God of the universe wants you to know him and has given you the ability to do so. man, that does something to me. That Jesus would live a perfect life and freely give his life for me. That he would be humiliated, that he would be spat on, um, that he would hang naked on a cross for you and for me. All so we could have life and have it abundantly. That God's spirit could live inside of us. I know some of you in this place are probably thinking, Tony, that sounds so awesome. But you know what? Like, you don't know the things that I've done. You don't know the shame that I've that I carry in my life. You don't know the things that I've experienced. And you're right, I I don't. But I haven't always walked with the Lord. When I was a kid, um, I grew up in a Christian home, so to speak, and. My parents both gave their hearts to the Lord when uh, this evangelist came to their town and set up a tent and had revival meetings, and they gave their life to Jesus. Well, when I was a boy, um, my mother fell into this deep depression, and um, that led to alcoholism. It led to prescription drug abuse. It led to um, infidelity. It led to divorce. It led to my sister and I taking care of the house and Um, finding out mom got arrested. It led to homelessness for my mother until I was 11 years old when she inevitably um, took her own life. And I can remember that day at 11 years old saying, God, it is obvious to me that you do not care about me. You don't care about my family. You don't care about my mom. And I want nothing to do with you. I can remember I can remember so vividly saying those words. And so that's what I did at 11 years old, I mean as much as you can at 11. And uh, but I just from then on until I was uh, for the next 9 years of my life just did whatever I wanted. Led to my own depression, my own alcoholism, my own drug abuse, kicked out of high school my senior year or just fighting all the time and being high all the time and not going to class. And um, in and out of jail on my own. And uh, I can remember being 20 years old and uh, I had gone to jail again. And one of the conditions was um, because you have such a bad drug addiction, you have to go to this this treatment facility that is like a government-run treatment facility, who which was called the Last Chance Program, get better or go to prison. <laughs> so I was like, this is encouraging, it's inspirational. Uh, but I didn't want to go to prison, so I I thought, you know, and I can talk the talk and walk the walk, and um, you know, if you were to look at me. I was the, the crazy guy. I was the guy that always had the parties. Was always at the parties. I was the guy um, that everyone wanted to hang around when we were partying. But on the inside, I was man. Nights I would cry myself to sleep. I hated God. I would curse out God every chance that I had. I hated him. Man, I hated him. He was the cause of all my problems. Finally, I was in this treatment facility. I remember. One day I'm staring out the window, and um, it's the first week there, and I, I literally only had, thing I had was the clothes that I was wearing. My roommates, who were my like my best friends in the world, they sold all my stuff and to pay rent, my guitars and my amps. They sold, you know, put all my clothes out on the boulevard. I didn't even have a toothbrush, and I can remember sitting there completely alone. Six months prior, I'd cussed out my family, told them I wanted nothing to do with them. I never wanted to see them again. And there it was, I thought, this is my life. This is what I've done. I'm just completely alone. And I can remember looking out the window and as I'm feeling sorry for myself and I see this car pull up, I remember I'm like, that looks like my dad's car, and I remember being so angry. <laughs> What is he doing here? And I can remember them getting out of the car. I remember them going to the back of the car, and opening the trunk, and pulling out you know, bags of clothes and toiletries and groceries for me. It seems like such a silly, small, stupid thing, but for me it was like I didn't have anything. I didn't have anyone. And I can remember that was the first time that God began to speak to me about his love. You see, I had done the opposite of deserving it. I had done everything I could to avoid it, to run away from it, and here it was staring me in the face. You see, in this world, love is like something that is worked for, and so if we betray it in any way, then we're left on our own. But that's not the love of God. And that day, my dad gave me a Bible, and... uh, He said, Tony, I want you to start reading this. And I was like, Dad, I'm not going to read this. And he said, well, you don't have anything else to do. And I said, well, you have a point. (laughs) So uh, that day, I didn't even know what to, I just opened my Bible. It was kind of one of those things. I just opened my Bible, and I started reading Psalm 18. And this was the first time that God's word um, really spoke to my heart. And he said this. In Psalm 18, verse 16, this won't be on the screen, but it says that he sent from above and he took me. He drew me out of many waters. He delivered me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too strong for me. They confronted me in my day of calamity, but the Lord was my support. He also brought me out into a broad place and he delivered me because he delighted in me. He delivered me because he delighted me. I remember reading that, and the words like jumped off the page and hit me like a brick in the face, and God said, Tony, I want to deliver you because I delight in you. I want to deliver you because I delight in you. I said, are you freaking kidding me, God? Look at me. What is there worth? There's nothing of worth in me. What could you possibly delight in me? You know, I learned later that in Zephaniah 3, it says that God rejoices over you and I. That word rejoice in the Hebrew means to, to dance and to twirl about. <laughs> that sounds weird, but you have to think about how excited you have to be to dance. For me, it's a lot. It's, it takes a three-and-a-half-year-old to make me dance. But you have to be really excited to, to dance. And when God thinks about you, God is so excited. He's so pumped. He dances when he thinks about you, when he thinks about your life. When he thinks about the potential and what, you're, what the capabilities that he's given you, I want you that to sink in. Especially coming from someone like me, who I had nothing to. What could I possibly offer God? So I fought this for the next few months. I didn't know really what to do with this information, and I was sitting at a diner. <clears throat> I remember. With my dad and I sat across the table with him. We were talking, and he he looked across the table at me and he said, "Tony, aren't you sick and tired of being sick and tired?" And I thought about my life. I was like, "Dad, I'm just tired of being angry all the time. I'm tired of feeling empty. Tired of hurting people." He said, "Tony, don't you think it's time that you gave your life to Jesus?" I said, "Yeah, Dad, but I don't. (laughs) Why?" Would he want me? <laughs> and so we went out to our 98 Dodge minivan. In the parking lot of this greasy spoon diner. And there, I simply just put my hands like this, and I just said, Jesus, I need you. I need you to take control of my life. I can't do this. And that was the first day of my life. That I was dead, and he made me alive. I wish I could stand up here and say to you in that moment, God fixed my problems. Everything was perfect. I got let out of there. I didn't. I spent eight months in there. I got ridiculed by my counselors and by people for saying this whole thing wasn't real. But God began to change me. He began to, to move in my heart. Um, when I got out there, I got involved with Chi Alpha, um, and they needed a worship leader. And so they knew I, I played guitar and sang. And I, I said, they asked me, because there was an, a different guy who was really awesome who was graduating. So they needed somebody in the summer. And I said, well, I can, but I still smoke. I'm on probation, you know. Like, <laughs> is that all right? They're like, well, there's really nobody else. So <laughs> I said, okay, you know. But I didn't have any friends. I didn't have anybody. You know, all my friends they deserted me. I had friends that were supposed to be my best friends in the world. We toured all over the nation together, you know, in bands, and and they were my best friends in the world. And none of them talked to me ever. Get out of friends, screaming my face, and said, "You're you're not going to change. You're just like us. You'll be back. Just wait and see." I didn't have anybody, and I remember getting involved uh, with Chi Alpha and meeting these people, and uh, nobody was judging me, <laughs> or. Uh, you know, trying to change me, so to speak, but Holy Spirit just began to come and change my heart and change my life, but I was really trying hard, like I talked about earlier, to strive to be a better boy. I even got arrested again, and I was trying to be better. I was really trying to be better. It's embarrassing to call your dad after you're saved, and you say, Dad, can you bail me out of jail? I'm sorry. It was an accident. I didn't mean to, um, but I was striving. It was hard, and I remember about a year later, I'm just struggling, and I'm saying, God, I want to do this, I want to live for you, but it's, I don't know if I can do this, it's too hard to do it on my own. And um, little did I know, I remember writing my journal, God, would you rock my world? Because this isn't working. Because it was all me, it was just trying to be better, just trying to toe the line. Later I had this experience with the Holy Spirit I was baptized in the Holy Spirit. It was a radical experience in my life. And in that moment, I was free from depression and suicidal thoughts. I thought about blowing my brains out almost every day. I was free from suicidal thoughts, free from my addictions, and called into ministry. God changed the trajectory of my life. Completely changed me. And like I said, I wish that from that moment on I could say everything has been perfect in my life. It hasn't. There's been times I've, I've still betrayed God. I've still turned my back on God, but I've still gone my own way. But oh man, what I love about Jesus is that he's still pursuing us. He's always pursuing us. We can spit in his face, and he can still be reaching a hand out for us. Saying, come, just come. You don't understand. You don't see. If you saw, if you really understood, if you really could see who I am and understand I am, who I am in a greater way, this would seem so silly. Just Come. And that's what God's grace is. It's, it's him revealing himself to us. He reveals himself to us, and then we realize how we are in just such sharp contrast to him. But how much, how deeply he loves you and I, his children. We sang that song, Reckless Love. It's really accurate. It sounds weird, Reckless Love, but it doesn't make sense until you understand who God is.